So the title of today's message is Lessons from the Well. We're going to be looking at the, uh, Jesus talking to the woman at the well. And we're going to be in John chapter 4, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. When I was in the Army, I was stationed near Montgomery, Alabama. And for all of you who lived through the 60s and the 70s, you remember the name Montgomery, Alabama. It was the birth of the Civil Rights Movement. Montgomery, Alabama was a place where Rosa Parks refused to give up her bus seat to a white man. It's a place where Dr. Martin Luther King did a lot of his civil rights marches and preached against the injustice of racism in his day. And one of the events when I was in the military, one of the events that we went to um, that was sponsored by a morale officer was that there were weekly bus trips in the fall to go see a semi-pro team that is still there called the Alabama Seminoles. And the first time I went there, it was a lot of fun. I got to go see a pro football game or semi-pro football game, get off the base, have some fun, enjoy myself and doing something other than Army stuff. And during the game, I went off to find a bathroom and I came upon a roped off area near the bathroom that contained two water fountains. One water fountain had a sign above it that said whites only and the other water fountain had a sign that said colored people only. There's a plaque on the wall by that that said that these fountains represented the racism that existed in this city through the early 1970s. And it was there as a, a memorial and a, a reminder of the racial segregation that had existed in Alabama at that time. And I remember how I felt about it. I felt really just queasy, funny in my heart. I mean, I grew up in Wisconsin. We didn't see a lot of overt racism, at least in Kenosha where I grew up. I mean, the most I saw was occasionally hearing a black joke or, or somebody saying, um, talking about black people in a profane way. But it wasn't something as overt as having different water fountains for different races of people. And I really didn't understand racism because I grew up in the poor area of Kenosha. I grew up amongst black people, Hispanic people. I mean, I even had a Japanese friend growing up. And so I didn't really understand racism in the way that it existed in the South. I mean, the most I had to, to knowledge and, and that I had to do with it was just reading books or, or seeing movies about it. But I had never really seen a firsthand example of the kind of racism that used to exist. And I wasn't even a Christian then. But it still, it made my heart ache. I had that queasy feeling that this was just not right. And in the scripture we're going to read today, Jesus is going to be dealing with an extreme example of racism as he chooses to talk to a Samaritan woman. And some of you remember the history of the Samaritan people from our Sunday school lessons last year when we were looking through the minor prophets. But just to do a quick review of those who might not understand who the Samaritan people are. In 1052 BC, there's a man named Saul. Saul becomes king over Israel. Before this, the tribes of Israel have existed in their own little plots of land. They're a loose confederation of people, but they're not really a nation. I mean, they even fight little wars among themselves. But King Saul starts to bring all of them together as one nation. This work continues with King David and culminates under King Solomon, who establishes Israel as the biggest superpower that existed on earth at that time. Then in 950 or 931 BC, King Solomon dies. His son Rehoboam takes the throne. Rehoboam has some young friends, gives them some really bad advice. The kingdom ends up splitting in half. Ten of the tribes go to the north, form their own kingdom um, called Israel. Two of the tribes stay to the south. They form their own kingdom 
uh, named Judah. Israel in the north is separated from the pure worship of God because they're separated and cut off from Jerusalem now. So they don't have that temple worship. They don't have the faithful priests preaching to them about the true way of God. And they immediately fall into idolatry. They fall into all sorts of wickedness. And they never truly recover. And for 200 years, God keeps sending them prophet after prophet after prophet, begging them to come back to God, warning them against the judgment that is going to come against them. And about 200 years later, Finally, that judgment comes. In 722 AD, the northern kingdom of Israel is conquered by the huge superpower called Assyria. Its people are killed or scattered or carried away into captivity. Those few who are remained are forced into intermarriage as Assyria brings its own people in to occupy the land. So they're forced into intermarriage with their conquerors. Now this violates the law of Moses. Moses put down that old... Hebrews can only marry other Hebrews because he's trying to show them that they should not mingle with these other people and he's trying to protect the pure seed of Messiah. So he has that in the law. And all these people that intermarry with their conquerors, they all kind of congregate into central Israel. And they now become the Samaritan people. And because of their sin and their polluted bloodlines, they can never again be full citizens in Israel. They can never offer sacrifices at the temple. They wouldn't even be allowed in the court of the Gentiles was how far separated they were from that temple worship them. And the animosity between the pure-blooded Hebrews and the Samaritans got even worse as time went on. In fact, during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, when Ezra and Nehemiah come back in to the Holy Land, remember, they had all been carried away. Judah, a hundred years after Israel got carried away, they get carried away by Babylon. So now they're coming back into the land with an edict from Cyrus. He wants them to rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild your temple, and go back into your land. So they go back into their land. And in 444 B.C., a Samaritan leader comes down named Sabalat, and he offers Samaria's help in rebuilding the temple. He said, hey, you know, we're kind of Jews. We'll be more than happy to help you rebuild this city and rebuild the temple so we can all worship together as one big happy family. But he is rejected by Nehemiah for not being a pure-blooded Hebrew. And to our understanding, it sounds kind of racist, doesn't it? It sounds very unloving. It's, this guy wants to help build a church. Why aren't Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah allowing him? Well, to understand their mindset, Ezra and Nehemiah and all the other people that were returning with them had just suffered a 100-year exile for breaking God's law in the first place. So they weren't going to go anywhere near a violation of the law like letting a for, let foreigners come in and work on the temple. So they were very being very strict with the law at that point. Well, Sambalat is obviously a little bit upset about that. He, he has some feelings about that. He's, he, he starts to, to form an opposition, which ultimately fails. And he decides, well, the heck with you, is, or Judah. I'm going to go for, build my own temple. And he bo builds a temple um, for the Samaritan people at a place called Mount Gerizim. And he forms a religion called Samaritanism, which was an offshoot of Judaism. This further isolates him from the, from the Israelites, and it made them hate him and the Samaritans even worse. So that's, the, that's a little bit of the history of why the Jews and the Samaritans hate each other so much. And geographically, 
Samaria exists between Galilee in the north and Judah in the south. So you have almost a divided kingdom. There's no way to get from here to here without going through Samaria unless you went all the way around it. So what should have been about a 70-mile journey to go, say, from where Jesus grew up in Galilee, which is in the northern part of Israel, to go to, um, down to Jerusalem in the south, it was about 70 miles if you went straight down. But because Jews and Samaritans hated each other so much, they rather would go all the way around 120 miles. And keep in mind, this isn't, uh, this isn't taking a car on an interstate. This is walking. They'd rather walk 120 miles around Samaria than, go, than walk, take one step into it. This would be like us going down to La Crosse by going over to Minnesota, crossing the Mississippi, traveling down the, the eastern edge of, of the Mississippi, down to the, where the interstate crosses again, and then going down there because we don't want to go through Holman. I mean, that, that's about how much sense that made back then. That's the history, and it's important to understanding today's message, and it's important to understanding what Jesus was facing when he decided to have a sit-down and talk with a woman who should have been his mortal enemy. And that's the background of what we're going to get into today. In John chapter 4, start, <clears throat> excuse me, starting in verse 1. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judah and he went, went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it was that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with, and our well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank from it himself, and also did his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, anyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in them a spring of living water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water, so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you've just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, the time is coming when you will worship the Father Neither on this mountain, 
nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming, and when he comes he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Let's pray. Father God, I ask, Lord, as we unpack this scripture today, that it will show us exactly why it was placed in the scripture where it is and how it is the practical outworking of the previous chapter. This is Jesus doing what he has already said. And I ask, Father, that you use it to encourage us, to show us, and to lead us in how we are to interact with the people around us, particularly those who don't know you. Father, I ask this in your name. Amen. Last year when I was preparing to teach through this series on the Gospel of John, I found some interesting critiques of the way that, God, that John chose to write his Gospel. If you know anything about the Bible, you know that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they're called the Synoptic Gospels. It means they, they come in the same manner, in the same source, telling essentially the same message. But John takes a very, very different um, way of, of talking about Jesus. And a lot of people here um, had a lot of critique about the way that John did it. And they were questioning if John was, was supposed to be in the Bible and all that. And, and I would... I thought it was kind of dumb. It's people with bigger heads than their abilities, I think, and too much education that some people educate themselves beyond, um, beyond their abilities sometimes. And I would disagree with some of their findings. I think the Holy Spirit used John to present Jesus in a very particular way. And I also think God was very deliberate in the order that, God, that John chose to write his gospel. And the fact that this story of the Samaritan woman comes right after Jesus describes and educates us on the salvation plan of God in John chapter 3, particularly verses 16 and 17, is very important. Remember, John 3.16 says, For God loved, so loved the world, he gave us his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And that's a teaching that Jesus Christ came into this earth to impart to us, to show us, to, to guide us into um, bringing us home to God the Father and bringing others with us. In other words, John chapter 3 gives us the principle, but John chapter 4, we see the principle and the teaching demonstrated before us. I see it as deliberate work of the Holy Spirit that John wrote his gospel this way to teach us the principle and then demonstrate it in action. And I'm going to spend the rest of the message showing just several points very quickly that we can learn from what Jesus did here in the application of John chapter 3. So back to John chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, it says here that Jesus was getting sick of dealing with the religious crowd. Now, when I say religious cloud, I want to be very clear. I'm not talking about church people. 
You know, it, it sounds like when people preach this, they, they say he's getting sick of church people. That's, that's not what it was. It was the Pharisees that he was getting sick of. These were people that were using the church to make themselves special or make themselves feel good or be proud in their position and, and make them look special to people. That's, he's not talking about the believers. He's talking about religious um, hypocrites type people, and those were the Pharisees. And they're making Jesus very frustrated. They're refusing to believe his teaching. They're refusing to believe that he is who he says he is. And he's just getting to the end of his human ability to tolerate them. I mean, he's probably just about ready to tell John and James, hey, you guys want to call down fire on somebody? Get those guys over there. I mean, he's probably, and his humanity is probably just about at this point. But instead of doing that, he chooses to walk away. And he decides to go to the one place that these Pharisees would never, ever go, and that is into Samaria. So what's the lesson for you and I? There's an underlying principle in this, and that is that sometimes spiritual frustration is necessary for kingdom growth. Jesus was frustrated at this point, and God used that frustration to show us how the kingdom can still grow even during a time of our, what is seemingly a frustrating time for us in life. Around the time I was called to a ministry, I sat down to talk with a missionary to Africa that was visiting the church we were at at the time. And I asked him um, just a simple question. I said, I don't understand why all these people want to go into missions when there are so many needs here. Why do you go to Africa when you can just go across the street and see dozens and dozens of needs? And I was still a little immature in the faith and definitely new in the ministry, so I didn't really understand the way that God works or anything, but that was a question I asked him. Why do you go to Africa when there's so many needs here? He said, you know what? I was a pastor here in the States for a long time. I was a pastor with a hugely growing church. My church was just exploding. I had a great salary, awesome benefits, full benefits. I had health, retirement, car allowance, everything. I mean, my church was just exploding. I was being pointed at as an example in my district about how to be a pastor and how to do church. They're asking me to write books about church growth. You know, I had it made here. But he said, underneath all that seeming success, I was absolutely miserable. I couldn't stand going into church on Sunday. There are so many times I went to church on Sunday, he said, I'd write out a resignation letter right there on Sunday and Monday morning. He said, most of my day in the church was putting out personality fires and, and settling little conflicts in between various factions in the church. Every time I walked in there, I was always in the middle of a fight, in the middle of an argument, trying to get people to become and actually grow disciples of Jesus Christ. And every Monday morning, he said, I wanted to wake up and quit the ministry. But eventually, God opened up a door to go to Africa as a missionary. When I finally did that, when I finally obeyed his call, I found that I've never been more fulfilled, more used, experienced more of the presence of God, and seen more genuine conversions of people than I have in Uganda. And he said, right or, right or wrong, it took that sense of frustration in my soul to get me to move into what God had really called me to do. I looked so much at the position. I looked so much at, at the benefits. I looked so much at the comfort I would have here in America. 
But I totally missed the calling, and God had to use that kind of frustration to get me to go to where he wanted me to go. And when I did, it was like, boom, kingdom growth happened. I have a church in Uganda that is huge, and it's filled with people that want to follow Jesus Christ. The application for us is too many times when a Christian is in a season of despair or feeling like God is absent or that their current situation seems like it's impossible, I think sometimes we're too quick to speak into that situation. I think sometimes we come up with a pat answer, even in our own life or in the life of others, kind of like Job's friends. You know, we'll walk up to a person who, who confesses a need. Maybe it's during our prayer time and somebody asks us to pray for them. And we, and we want to kind of give them the pat answer. We'll, we'll say, you're under spiritual attack or your flesh is getting in the way. You're not praying enough. You're not in the Word enough. Maybe you need a sabbatical. We, we, we try to, to solve their problem for them. We want to fix the issue with spiritual sounding solutions. But what we miss is that very often our Father God sends these seasons into our life because he wants to make us uncomfortable. Sometimes God wants us squirming a little bit. So all we can do is cry out to him because sometimes he needs us to be squirming because that's the only time we're going to hear his voice. He wants us to be uncomfortable so that all is left, that is left that we can turn to is him. And that's the key to this whole section here is that God cannot, nor he will not, allow his children to experience the fullness of his presence, the fullness of his provision, the fullness of his power, or the fullness of his prosperity until we are exactly where we are supposed to be within his plan. I mean, what would happen if Jesus had stubbornly obeyed the cultural expectations of his time? instead of doing something uncomfortable. Remember what the expectations were of him. You don't set one foot in Samaria. You're a good Hebrew man. You don't go anywhere near those sinners up there. You don't associate with Samaritans. If you see one on the street, you don't even talk to him. You walk to the other side of the street, turn your head away from him, and hope he doesn't come anywhere near you and spiritually contaminate you. You never, ever, ever speak to a woman alone. My gosh, you know what that would do to your reputation, Jesus? Never speak to a sinful person. You know what that woman was into and you're talking to her? You don't risk your reputation. I mean, yeah, you might reach somebody with the gospel, but don't risk your reputation. If Jesus has followed the rules, you and I wouldn't be sitting here today. The gospel never would have spread beyond Israel. And humanly speaking, would have died when the Romans sacked Jerusalem in 70 AD. You remember what Jesus told the disciples before he went to heaven? Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria. Very, very interesting. He focused on Samaria and then you go to the ends of the earth. And without this demonstration in John chapter 4 of Jesus ministering to this woman, the disciples probably would have heard Jerusalem, Judea, and it would have stopped there. And what this shows us is that Jesus never tells us to do something he has not already showed us to do or has done himself. Another thing I want to point out here is prior to meeting this woman, it said that Jesus even sent his disciples away. They went out to go find food. Why does that matter? 
is because sometimes your closest friends and even your family can be the biggest hindrances of seeing God work in your life. When God gives you a vision of what He wants you to do, I guarantee you that those closest to you will not understand. They will not support it, and they probably won't even agree with it. Particularly if they're coming from a, a non-Christian viewpoint. When I was called to the ministry, my dad said I was crazy. He said, you have a great career, man. You can make all kinds of money. You, you know, you're, you could, you could like, be in management to make six figures and do all these kind of things. You know, I don't need God. Look how well my life has come. And, and look at all the possessions I have. You, you don't need all that. My mom thought I joined a cult, so did my grandparents. My grandparents came down during my, the evening before my wedding, and my grandma came in the room where I was staying at my mom's house, and she's like, I know you're going to like a different church now, but you know Jesus is still Lord, right? Because <laughs> we, we were going to essentially an AG church without it being AG. My brother, yeah, he thought I was crazy. Nobody, all my old friends, nobody, everybody when I became a Christian just said, you've got to be crazy. When I was called to the ministry, it was even worse. But I've discovered this truth both in the Bible and through personal experience. When Jesus gives us a word or he gives us a mission in life, sometimes it's wise to keep it to yourself. Let it germinate in your spirit. Let Give God some time to tell you some of the details. God usually won't give you the whole picture at once because it's too awesome. I mean, think about it. If, if, if God would have would have showed any one of the disciples what they would have to go through their entire life after Jesus called them, every single one of them, I think, would have ran screaming in the opposite direction. They all would have did a Jonah and ran over to, into Europe somewhere. God just gives you pieces of it at a time because he knows that we can't handle it all at once. So I'd caution you about sharing it with others because they're most often they're not going to understand it, agree with it, and they'll probably try to talk you out of it. And I would encourage you to treat others with the same care. There are people that will come to you and say, I think God told me just do this kind of thing. And it's going to sound incredible. I mean, I was thinking, you know, Jubilee is going to be coming pretty soon and, and being here on a Wednesday night. And I was thinking if, if she would have went up to the wrong person when she thought that I was call, I'm being called to Africa, how many people would have said, you're, you're, you're like this, this little skinny girl. And you're like the wrong color. I mean, it's, it's, it's all black people. you got to be crazy. You can't go over there. They're Muslim. They'll cut your head off. There have been all kinds of people talking to her about that and trying to talk her out of that. And so I would just encourage us to treat other people with the same care because too often we dismiss God's revelation to the person because of our expectations and our lack of faith. And we sometimes can discourage people from doing that which God has told them to do. Another point I want us to consider for this morning is that Jesus goes and meets her where she was. Let's quickly review this woman that Jesus was meeting. Number one, we've gone over this a lot, but she's a Samaritan. According to Jesus' religion, the thing that he has been raised with, this person is not worthy in God's sight. They are, they are doomed. They are outside the will of God. There is no hope for them. This person is so bad that even speaking to her would spiritually contaminate him somehow. 
Number two, she's a woman. Again, this is a person in this culture, in this culture, is not even worthy of a holy man's time to talk to. If he was seen talking to her alone at a well that's well away from the city, it's going to ruin him in the eyes of the religious crowd. And it's not just any woman. This is a woman who is considered to be so bad by even the Samaritans that the only time she could come and get water is in the heat of the day. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a desert in the heat of the day, but you do everything in the early morning or you do in the early evening. Middle of the day, you're indoors or under a tree or in shade somewhere. Matter of fact, in their culture, all the women of the, of the village would come and get their water at the same time. It was kind of their time to catch up, talk about their kids, all that kind of stuff. They'd all walk out to the well and get the water together. The fact that she's coming in the heat of the day around noon is telling us that she's such an outcast that no one wants her around. And it's because it, she has such a sinful past and even a sinful present, she's still living in this sin. And I imagine as she's trudging through this blistering heat of the day, carrying all these jugs of water for a man that's only using her for one thing, knowing that anyone she meets along the way is going to avoid her. These people will literally walk into a field to, to give her like 10 yards and look away from her and not even acknowledge her if she says hi. And then she goes and she sees her worst enemy, a Hebrew man, sitting at the well. I don't know if you've ever felt severe rejection in your life. I mean, I'm talking about the kind of rejection where an entire city or an entire neighborhood or, or an entire workplace thinks you're just the lowest scum on earth. Somehow maybe your reputation got trashed. You're the kind of person you walk into a room and everybody leaves. You see people on the street and they look away. You can't even leave the house without feeling that kind of oppression of, of people's scorn upon you. That's how this woman feels seeing Jesus. And I have no doubt she's thinking, great, one more person to tell me how awful I am. One more nail in my heart proving my worthlessness. One, for, one more scornful look to tell me that I am nothing. So you'd imagine that her shields are up as she comes toward the well. But Jesus knocks him immediately down with one question, will you give me a drink? Will you give me a drink? And I can't imagine, she's just stunned. She's like, one, he talked to me, and two, he asked me for something. Three, he's a Jew. Maybe I need to remind him, sir, you're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan, we don't talk to each other. Understand it, we're supposed to hate each other. You have nothing to do with me, I have nothing to do with you. Let me just get my water, and I'm going to go on my way. Jesus then, re, re, the, Jesus then applied John 16 and 17 to whoever will believe. Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is talking to you, you would ask me for living water. Jesus met her. He brushes aside her defenses. He humbles himself by asking her for something that only she could give him. He, in, in essence, he made himself the beggar to her for something only she could provide in that moment. And Jesus did that to earn the right to speak to her greatest need, and that is spiritual rebirth and nourishment. And the takeaway for us is this. Sometimes you need to earn the right to speak. 
Most people, particularly the ones most jaded and most hostile to the faith because of what life has done to them, need to see the gospel working in your life before you earn the right to speak to them about it or they'll even believe anything you say about it. And one of the failings in the modern church is we have a tendency to treat those who don't know Jesus like they're projects instead of people. Much of the evangelism programs that we go through in life today, they, they tell you how to, to reach and speak to the issue, but they really don't tell you how to love the person. We're called to make disciples, not converts. We're called to make disciples, not just people who want to follow after Jesus. We're called to make disciples. And if you're going to make disciples, that means you have to lovingly share your life with them. And when I say share your life with them, it means you can't criticize every bad habit they have. It means you might have to endure and overlook some colorful language once in a while. It means you might not be able to, dare to deal with some glaring sins in their life at first, but actually trust the Holy Spirit to do the cleaning. In other words, you need to follow Jesus' example here in John 4. He talks to her, the person. He talk, treats her her like a person, not just somebody he can, he can um, bring into the kingdom, but he talks to a person here. He sees an individual. He draws out a need and he uses that to tell her what her real problem is. He, he tells us the real thing that is causing all the pain, all the ostracism from her neighbors and all the loneliness that has kept her in chains of spiritual oppression for years. And this thing is that she has sought love and intimacy and fulfillment through sex instead of following God's plan for her. Any one of us could, could rattle off names of, of people that we have known that have done exactly that. And Jesus shows her what only, that only he could give her what she needed, and that was rebirth. She needs a new beginning. She needs a new spirit. And her reply of where she should worship makes some people think it was her attempt to distract Jesus from digging too far into his spirit. I don't think that for a second. She immediately sees her spiritual need. She has a son of God standing before her, the perfection in the flesh. She sees that Jesus is a prophet and a Hebrew. So she asks actually a very good question. Do I need to go to Jerusalem to, to make this right, Jesus? Or can I do it right here at home at Mount Gerizim? And it's wonderful. It's a wonderful thing when you read it because her spirit's open for the big truth that Jesus speaks next into our hearts. And he speaks that into all of our hearts this morning. And it's the goal of what we read in John chapter 3 last week. In John 4 verse 21, he says, Woman, believe me, there is a time coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. Verse 24, God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. If I was going to paraphrase this for our 21st century ears, I said, ma'am, you'll never find what you need in a religion. You will only find what you so desperately desire, what you're doing, all these other things that have caused you to be ostracized for. The only place you're going to find that kind of fulfillment is in an intimate relationship with God our Father. Her reaction to this is that she believed. 
and she was born again. And isn't that the goal of John chapter 3? And what did this reborn woman go and do? She told everybody. The kingdom went forth. What did she tell them? That God so loved the world, he gave us his one and only son. That whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him, even me, this dirty, rotten sinner over here, even if I believe in him, I get to have everlasting life. And how did the rest of the people react to this woman they, they formerly had no time for? It said many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did, and when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. Because of his words, many more came, became believers. And they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we've heard for ourselves. We know that this man is the Savior of the world. John chapter 4 is all about applying the kingdom principles found in John chapter 3. And if we put those kingdom principles into action, it'll bring about kingdom growth. It'll bring about kingdom growth in a person. It'll bring about kingdom growth in a family. It'll do it in a neighborhood. It'll do it on your job. It'll do it for a country if we believe that God so loved the world he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. We need to believe this again in the church. We need to follow Jesus' example into going out and finding those whose society is thrown away as unworthy and bring them into the kingdom. In fact, Jesus prophesied in a parable that it would be that way in the, end, in the last days. That all the people that we would normally want to go to the upper middle class people, he's saying, no, it's going to be the people in the gutter. It's going to be the people with the drug problems. It's going to be the, the people with wrecked marriages. It's going to be those people that society is throwing away that you're going to now gather into the kingdom of God. 